jump into the sermon, I, I want to blame this sermon on someone. Um, Jack Callis. <laughs> I'm calling you out. No, Jack, Jack preached, what was it, three weeks ago? He preached. And um, it, was, it was a great sermon. He sent it to me beforehand um, as if it needed approval. And then I kind of listened to it, and it, it sort of like drums something up in me. Made me curious. The, the title was My Creed, but I, I think your main point was something like uh, we, we have to be critical about the creeds and the confessions that we receive, the, the religious information that we take in. Um, we have to think about it. We have to go into ourselves and ask what do, what do I really think? What do I really believe about this? We can't just accept it hook, line, and sinker, right? We have to ask questions. And so I started asking questions. I, I got curious and I wondered. What are some of the things that I have just sort of accepted? What are some of the things that I have not maybe thought critically about? And one of the things that I came up with was what we're going to talk about in the sermon today, and that is what inspires Jesus' ministry? Why does Jesus come? Why is Jesus doing ministry on earth in the Gospels? And, and one answer you might give, you, you might jump to John 3.16 and say, well, God, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, and whoever so believes in him might have eternal life. So you might say Jesus came to give us eternal life, or Jesus came to die for our sins, or Jesus came for the relationship with us. And I, and I don't want to say that any of those are not true, but I want to think about a different side of the story, because I think often when we go the way that Jack is telling us kind of not to go, we can end up believing these things and, and almost dehumanizing Jesus. We don't, get a, we don't get a real Jesus. We don't get an earthy Jesus. We get the Jesus that has been handed down century after century after century. And I wonder how many of us know what we really believe about that, including myself. And so if this goes well, uh, thank you, Jack. And if it doesn't go well, yeah. <laughs> I would encourage you too, if you haven't, um, go back and listen to that. It was July 31st sermon. It should be on our YouTube and on our website. Our text this morning comes to us from Mark chapter 14, excuse me, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. Listen now for a word from God. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come to you. Repent and believe the good news. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Good loving God, thank you for today. God, thank you for your word. God, I pray whatever message we would hear this morning would come from you and not from me. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start by uh, playing a game, and it's called Name Your Favorite Church Scandal. And I, there's a prize associated, so Emily has a bag of. Fort Street t-shirts that I have inherited that I, I will, uh, I have so many of these that I, I have to get a <laughs> <laughs> So 
So if, if you have an answer, favorite church scandal that you've heard of, and, and I want to say, before you answer this, uh, you do not have to answer anything that um, you don't, you don't have to say anything you don't want to say. So if this is a sensitive topic, I, I want to acknowledge that. But maybe you've heard of pastor church scandals in the news that you've come across. So what are, what are some of your favorite ones that you've heard of? Yeah, I saw a hand right away in the back. There was a preacher that was a pimp before he started preaching. It's a t-shirt. If you're visiting with us today, welcome to 4th Street. Yeah, Pastor Sarah. I know of a church that split because of a decision of what color carpet to change the sanctuary. Yes. Yes. Scandal stories. Let's keep those out of the room. Any other? I, I heard of a church, and I don't want a T-shirt for this. I heard of a church that split over whether or not you could chew bubble gum in the sanctuary. Yeah, scandalous. I know. Anyone? Anyone? Church scandals that you've heard from the news, or maybe you've experienced? Oh, come on! I, I'm really, I was really counting on y'all. <laughs> Anyone else? 
I want to say too about Creflo Dollar, he recently repented of that, which I thought was phenomenal. He came back and he said, you know, I, I was wrong. <laughs> I think a lot of people sort of knew that already, but he, he came out and he said it and he admitted it. And what a, what a great testament. Another one of my favorites, that, and I have a whole list of these. I, I spent way too much time researching church scandals this week. Another one of my favorites is Fred Phelps of Westboro Baptist. Have you heard of Westboro Baptist Church? Yes. They are famous, I would say, for being a church of hate and of protesting people in the queer community especially. And so what they'll do is they'll, they'll go to different funerals, weddings, events, and they'll just protest. And their protest is telling people in the queer community and those that they don't agree with uh, their lifestyle choices. They tell them something like, uh, God hates you, that's that's one thing. You're going to hell, um, and, and essentially, you need to change everything about yourself. This is a church that, that does this. But Fred Phelps uh, got embroiled in some controversy, and then, this is, this is the thing that got him removed, this is the scandal. He had a change of heart, and his church couldn't handle it. He repented of what he believed, and they kicked him out. And I hate to smile about that, but there's some deep, deep irony going on. Fred Phelps and Westboro Baptist. Anyone else? Did anyone listen to the recent podcast, uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, about Mark Driscoll in Seattle? Yes. I see some fist pumps in the back. That's a church scandal, right? Those two get, they, they get t-shirts back there, actually. Yeah, we see get t-shirts. They're all large. Right. <laughs> well, that's good. So, thank you, Emily. Um, can we give her a round of applause? Those are just some of the church scandals. Maybe you saw the movie Spotlights that highlighted some scandal in the Catholic Church. They're all around. They're, they're all over the news, and it seems like a new one pops up every other day. I, I have my own story of church uh, scandal that I want to share with you, and I, I want you to know that um, if one, it doesn't involve me. I mean, it does, but it I am not the scandalous one in this, um, but it, it is very personal to me. Um, so when I was 12, we switched churches. We were going to the Church of Christ, and it was a big church. My parents wanted to switch to go to a smaller church where one of my mother's friends attended. And so we switched, and, and we really liked it. This was actually the church where Eric was youth pastor. And we got, we got very, very involved. My parents became elders. Um, my dad was uh, helping run the children's ministry in the BBS. Um, my mother was a youth group sponsor, and she toted all the kids back and forth from youth group. They were very, very involved. And I, I was involved, too. You know, I, I preached my first sermon at that, at that church, and you should ask Eric about that story of my first sermon after this, because uh, it was awful. Um, but we, we were really involved. We really, really enjoyed it. And my sisters also, like I have two sisters, and my, my sisters liked it, but they would also sometimes go to different youth groups. And one of the things we talked about as a family and as a church with church leadership at the time was, you know, it, it doesn't always matter where you go to church, right? If, if you're being spiritually fed somewhere, go there. If you're connecting with God and, and they're helping your relationship with Jesus, go to those places. And this was what my parents said. This is what I remember church leadership at the time saying. Well, my senior year of, of high school, uh, the, the pastor was leaving, and actually, my youth pastor, Eric, was leaving. And I, so I didn't know he was coming when I prepared this, but I just, I just want you to know, and I told him I was sharing this story, and he still came. So they decided they were leaving, and, and I understand why. I was, I was mad at him. I, I don't think I talked to you for like six months after that. 
I was upset, but uh, I, I, I understood. Well, when the new church leadership came in, this guy named Pastor Mike. Pastor Mike comes in and he finds out that my sisters are not always attending youth group regularly. And since my parents are both elders, Pastor Mike has a huge, huge issue with this. And he gives my parents an ultimatum. He says to them, like, if you, if you can't get your kids to come and attend this church and do the programs here, and if they're going somewhere else, then I think you're all going to have to leave. And my, you know, my mom's, you know, stubborn as I am, and so she said, yeah, that's fine. I guess we'll have to leave. And so the congregation met, they voted, and we were asked to leave to the point that, like, I actually went back to visit shortly after that, and I was escorted from the property until that I was not allowed to be there. Um, so my sisters got us kicked out of church. <laughs> We're going to the wrong place. We've all heard stories of church scandal. And maybe some of us have our own stories like that, that this conversation is bringing up. We've heard of these and we've experienced them. And then, you know, I guess it's just a reality of church in our world. And I, I really wish it wasn't. I really wish it wasn't. So what does this have to do with Jesus? One of the questions I've been asking after Jack's sermon is the question I posed earlier, and that is what inspires Jesus' ministry? And so often we're, we're given theological answers to this. And some of those theological answers are, well, you know, Jesus is God, and, and God loved the world, and so, you know, sent his son, and, and the son took on flesh, because Jesus wants to relate to us, Jesus wants to be our friend, Jesus wants us to know that he knows what it's like to be human. And we, we often skip right there when we start reading the Gospels, right? We begin the Gospels with all of this theological information, all those creeds and doctrines we've been handed, and they're kind of a filter for Right, and, and when we're reading the text, and I, and I wonder, my curiosity has been, what, if, what happens when we strip those away? What if we can suspend those for a second? And, and I'm not saying they're not true. I'm not saying they're not helpful. I'm not saying that I don't believe them. What I'm saying is, is often they dominate the conversation around who is Jesus and why is he doing what he's doing? And I'm very curious about, can we get a different picture of Jesus? Can we get a more humane Jesus? Can we get a Jesus that is rooted in his world? And so I want to try to flesh that out a little bit. The world that Jesus is born into, really we need to begin when the Romans invade Jerusalem. And I've, I've told this story a few times. I won't go into great detail, but it's a story about General Pompey, who was the Roman general who was overseeing the army that was going to go conquer Jerusalem. And the Romans did it pretty easily. I mean, it, it, I don't think the war lasted that long. They took the city, and as soon as General Pompey found out that they had won, he said, I want to go to the temple, and I want to meet the Jews' God. And so he goes up to the temple, and he walks into the Holy of Holies. And if you know what the Holy of Holies is, it's, it's where God was said to have dwelt. And there was a, a thick veil that ran between there and where the priests would stand and do their rituals. And once a year, a priest, one priest, chosen by lot, would be allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies to perform a ritual and a ceremony. But it was so dangerous to come face to face with God, they'd tie a rope around their ankle so that if they dropped dead suddenly, they could pull out the body without, you know, 
risking themselves. Well, General Pompey goes up to the Holy of Holies and he pulls back the veil and he finds nothing but an old box, some dust, and he looks around for a second and then he closes the veil and he says, okay, they can resume their worship. And he walks away. This is significant for a few reasons, and it could be apocryphal, but I think it illustrates the world that Jesus is kind of born into, and it's a world where the Jews are under Roman occupation. The temple has been occupied by Rome, and it's really been co-opted. It's been corrupted. The Romans are going to come along, and uh, they're going to start uh, getting taxes out of the temple, and they realize it's kind of a money-making machine. So if they can get all of those taxes out of it, well, Caesar becomes rich, and Whoever is put over that region, they get promoted, and they get more and more power. So the Romans have taken over the temple. This is the first thing that I want you to know about the world Jesus lives in. The second thing I want you to know is that Jesus appears to be the disciple of John the Baptist. And this might be a kind of a controversial take, because we don't often think of Jesus as a disciple of someone, right? We think of him as a teacher, we think of him as God who came down with all of the knowledge and wisdom. But Jesus comes up through the, the, the same um, sort of system that everyone did, and that is you had teachers that you followed, teachers that you listened to. And it, it appears, at least from Mark, that Jesus is a disciple of John the Baptist. He goes down to the river, and he's baptized by John the Baptist, right? He, um, he picks up a lot of the teaching that John the Baptist is said to have given. And I, I mention this to you to say that, that Jesus is not necessarily looking to become the prophet that he becomes, I don't think. I think, I think often we, we read the Gospels with, um, in, in hindsight, right? But if, if you're Jesus and you're in this world, and, and maybe you don't know your God, and you have a teacher, you're just learning these things, Jesus is experiencing the world that he's born into. I don't think he necessarily has the foresight that we often describe to him. Jesus is this disciple of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is a really interesting character, you know. He's supposed to be a priest. He's born of uh, Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest. And, you know, the priests at the time were of a certain family line. So he inherited the priesthood. And he didn't have another choice of what he was going to do. Except he kind of did because he exercised it. Um, John the Baptist is... Supposed to be in the temple working things, but he sees how corrupt the temple has become. And he makes a decision to not become a priest. He leaves, right? He goes into the wilderness and he puts on sackcloth like the old prophets. And he starts eating bugs <laughs> like the prophets and honey. And he begins teaching out there. And he's doing this away from the temple, away from the religious authorities, away from the eyes of Rome that are always watching always looking for a rebellion that might pop up. And he begins to bring some of the temple practices that he would perform as a priest in the temple. He begins to bring those to the wilderness. So he starts baptizing people. He starts doing these ritual baths where he's asking them to repent. This is a message that Jesus will pick up later in his ministry, just like John the Baptist. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. And then he would dunk them under the water or wash them over their head. Who knows how they did it? send them on the way. And I've taught before that um, 
the temple is corrupt maybe because of the religious authorities. And I've actually said probably from this pulpit that um, the religious authorities were against John. And actually I read a commentary this week that really changed my mind on this. Um, I read that John the Baptist was likely supported by a large majority of the priests and the religious authorities that are often demonized in Scripture. Um, because no one really liked Rome being in the temple, right? No one really liked Rome occupying things, except for maybe those that benefited from it, right? And so John the Baptist likely had the support of the temple to be out there doing those things until his movement grows so large. And he gets so many followers, and people are coming out in droves that it gets the attention of Rome. And then we read in our text for today, in chapter 1, verse 14, John was arrested. John was arrested. John is put into prison, and later they're going to chop off his head and put it on a silver platter. That's what they did. That was the power of the empire. And Rome is going to do that through the temple to maybe protect themselves a little bit. But they're going to do it. And in Mark, and this is what I really want to focus on today. In Mark, we are told, now after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news Luke Powery, in his commentary on this verse, says something to the effect of, we often miss that this is the catalyst for Jesus. And it's only this. It's not, it's not the moment when he's coming up out of the river and he's been baptized, right? God doesn't come and say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Also, can you begin your earthly ministry and do all of these things? It is only after John is arrested that Jesus is sent or feels inspired to take up the call to do ministry. And what Luke Powery says about this is that suddenly there's a vacuum in the world for Jesus. Suddenly there's a vacuum of, well, there's really the fake news of God that's being spread through the temple. And Jesus sees it, and he sees that John is speaking against it, and John is trying to promote this good news of God. And when John is put in prison, and no one is speaking against Rome and the corruption of the temple, Jesus decides that he is going to step in. It is a response to the injustice in the world that begins Jesus' ministry here on earth. And again, I'm not saying it's not done out of love. I'm not saying it's because he wasn't sent by God. I'm not saying that any of those aren't true, but often we miss this side, and it's easy to miss. I mean, what is this, like four or five words? After John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And it's not one minute before that that Jesus comes. The fake news of God that's kind of going around at the time is, is yes, the corruption of the temple, but, you know, I told you that what Rome did was really monetize the temple. And so what they do is when uh, people come to make sacrifices, especially during the festivals, they raise the prices of everything because they're going to take a certain percentage off the top for offerings that are given. And they're going to take that and they're going to give it back to Caesar. And this is illustrated, I think, well when Jesus goes into the temple. You remember when he freaks out and he flips the tables and he says something like, you know, my father's house is a house of prayer and you've made it into a den of thieves. The temple has become so corrupt. 
and spreading this sort of fake news of God that our faith is transactional. That if you have enough money and you can pay enough, you can make the right sacrifice, then you'll be clean. Then you'll be right with God. Then your relationship will be okay. But if you mess up again, well, you better have enough money to come back and do it again. Or if you're sick and you need healing, you know, you need enough money to go to a priest and present yourself. And then you can be healed. There's a transactionalism that's happening in the life of the temple that Jesus is responding to, that John was responding to, and it's a kind of what I want to call fake news of God that's been spreading. Because as we know, as good Presbyterians, most of us, our God doesn't operate on transactions. Our God doesn't operate according to power. Our God operates on grace, love, acceptance. And so Jesus' ministry begins, I think, as a response to this injustice, as a response to a world that has sort of lost God in a lot of ways. And he wants to show us the truth. After my family was removed from the church, you know, I, I kind of went on this wild spiritual journey. I didn't, I didn't really know what I believed for a long time. I was really angry, right, as you would be. Uh, my sisters are like still pretty upset about it, and I, and I think they should be. You know, um, I think my mom's still pretty upset about it. She was here this weekend, and I talked to her about it, and I told her I was going to share this story. Um, but it all sort of sent us out, and, and, and what I realized was that maybe I needed to wander. So I did, and I had a mentor that told me, maybe you need to wander, maybe you just need to search and find and explore, and so I did, and, and I eventually ended up at, a, you know, of all places, a Presbyterian church in the middle of Colorado that taught me that God is not a God of power and control, not a transactional God that if you do the right things, you'll be accepted and you'll be okay and you'll be in the right relationship with God. I found a church that said, you come as you are. A church that taught love and practiced it and believed it. A church that welcomed and accepted whoever showed up at their door. And it began to sort of open my eyes. And if you've ever been a part of a community like that, just, just raise your hand. Do you have groups of people where you're like, I can be exactly who I am with you? Just raise your hand. Yes. We all, we all need that, don't we? We all need that. But so often in our world, we're told that we need to be better. We need to have something. We need to have more money, or we need this and this and this. We need a transaction to take place before we're accepted and okay. And I found a place in the Presbyterian Church where I'm welcome, no matter who I am, no matter what I thought. I didn't even know if you know I, I believed in anything anymore when I went there. They were totally okay with that. <laughs> Surprisingly, they they could accept it. They could handle it. You know. Some of them even preached it from the pulpit. <laughs> it's like, wow, what, what is this place? What is this place? Friends, we all need communities where we belong. We all need places where we're loved. We all need places where we're included. We all need that in our lives. And Jesus comes 
to preach that message to us. He does a lot of other things too. But he's coming to preach that message because our world has this tendency to bend toward excluding people. Our world has a tendency to use power to dominate others, to oppress. Our world has a tendency to take over things and push people to the margins and not care and love. And I think that we are called to be the voice of Jesus in this world that says, no, that's not how God operates. But we're not just a voice, right? We also have to practice it. We have to carry it out. This is one of my issues with creeds and confessions too, is that sometimes we feel really good about saying that we believe the right things, but we often don't behave in the ways that maybe we should, right? I'm as guilty of that as anybody. We all need that love, that care, and that community. And my prayer for you this morning is that you would go and you would preach that good news to others, that there is a place where you can belong, where you don't have to be anyone other than who you are. You are loved, and you are accepted, and you will be included no matter what. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you again for your son. Thank you for inspiring him to speak to us, to teach us about love, to bring justice into the world, God, to include all of your children. Lord, I pray you would make us your hands and feet and your voice, and that we may do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.